This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash right book. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. On its 75th anniversary, Israel finds itself at a critical juncture. How can they preserve the democratic ideals on which they were founded and remain a Jewish state? How have the internal divisions become as threatening as the external forces, resulting in an existential battle for Israel's soul? And what might be the path forward? Isabel Kirshner, a New York Times journalist in Israel, explores these questions and provides perspective by introducing us to native-born Israelis, early settlers, recent settlers, Arabs, poets, ultra-Orthodox Jews, those that were there for the founding of Israel and recent immigrants, creating a tapestry of understanding that is illuminating, fascinating, and smart. Her new book, The Land of Hope and Fear, Israelis' Battle, for its inner soul is a much needed and brilliant exploration of the dynamics that led to this critical moment in Israel's history. Isabel, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, I'll say this at the end again, but I think that anyone that wants to understand Israel today, I'm going to say your book is just required reading. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. We'll take that. <laughs> we'll we'll go with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Isabel, Israel has been prominent in the news since its founding, and as recently as this morning, on the day that we're recording, it's front page news again. And you've been a journalist for the New York Times and the Jerusalem Bureau for sixteen years. What is unique about this moment in Israel's history that inspired you to write this now and not five years ago or not tomorrow? Well, I I can let you into a a secret. I was actually supposed to have written this five years ago. (laughs) 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 Um, But I'm sure I'm not the first author to have missed deadlines by, by years. Life simply got in the way, life and work. But the truth is, when I came back to really throw myself into the project, I knew it was going to be a much better story for the fact that I was late <laughs> because things had developed so rapidly here and in, in such uh, extreme directions. And I hadn't necessarily set out five years ago to write a book about Israeli divisions. I, I was setting out to really paint a portrait of who are the Israelis today. But by the time I I came to really focus on on writing this book, which was mostly 
2020-2021, like many authors, I was, you know, blessed to be stuck at home during lockdowns of the, during COVID era. And, uh, you know, by then it became much more crystal clear to me what I was actually dealing with and what, what, what we have on our hands here. And so, you know, I think the uniqueness of this moment it was building up for a while. And much about it, as you, you noted, Israel's always in the news and uh, has had rather a dramatic 75 years of it since its foundation. And yet we are kind of in a, a very dramatic inflection point here. The, the battle being for the character of the future state. What kind of a Jewish state will this be? Will it be a liberal democracy going forward? And these are very fateful questions that the country is now uh, grappling over and up in arms over in an unprecedented way. Whereas in the past, the big stories have usually been about Israel battling its uh, outside enemies. Isabel, one of the things that was so unique about your book is that you tell the history by introducing us to the people that make up its current population and how old and new divisions contribute to these conflicts. But one of the things that I was struck by, and I think I even forgot part of it, is as you discuss what are essentially the new tribes of the promised land, as I thought about them as I was reading this, I was struck by how even at Israel's founding and the war in 1948, there was already internal strife between the Ergun and the Haganah. And how does what was that dissension actually permeate or permutate into what continues to be an element of today's strife? It, it absolutely does. I mean, in the pre-state underground days, even before the establishment of, of Israel, you had very bitter rivalries and, and battles between the two main undergrounds, um, one which was much more um, the Ben-Gurion vision of, of, you know, pragmatism and let's settle for what we can get. And the other was the more the, the Irgun or the Etzel, which was the Hebrew acronym for it, was much more on the right, much more militant, uh, much more militant in terms of fighting the British who were ruling Palestine before, you know, up until '48 and had a, a much um, more maximalist vision of what the state of Israel should be territorially, and, and were much less prepared to settle for what, what was being offered. Now, of course, we obviously see this fundamental division continuing today, you know, between the Israeli left and right, um, or what's left of the left, or, or, you know, the peace camp, as it's often been called, which is still totally at odds over the territorial issue with the Palestinians, you know, over the future of the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza. What should the future of those territories that were uh, conquered by Israel in the 1967 war, what, what you know, th those are still up for grabs. And, and within Israel, a very hot button issue even till today. And you see a split totally along those lines of, of what we would have called the old left and, and right, or the, the old undergrounds of the Palmach and the Irgun. But since then, we've seen many new divisions rising up as well, as new waves of immigrants have come from different places. And there's, there's new tensions and demographic change and generational change, even within each of these tribes. And we, we've come to a point today where, you know, we're seeing a division not so much between the left and right on territorial issues, because for many reasons, people just don't feel that's like the most burning issue right now. And there's no prospect imminently on the horizon of, of a peace deal anyway. And therefore, Israel's kind of turning in on itself 
And now we're seeing the big battle between, let's say, the, the liberals and the nationalists or the zealots. So, yes, in a way, the old division is, is just taking on a new form. And there are many more newer rifts that are feeding into that. So, Isabel, before we get to the other constituencies, mm-hmm. let's just clarify, who would you say is the heir to the air gun? Is it Netanyahu in his coalition with the far right? I guess you could say that Netanyahu himself, as a leader, is fairly pragmatic. He's been less ideological in the past. He's definitely conservative and on the right of the Israeli political map. But yes, what we're seeing now is the most right-wing government with with the most far-right ultranationalist elements within it, within the coalition, than than we've ever seen before here, together with the ultra-Orthodox parties, who are the most religiously conservative parties to to, uh, be in government. And so you put those, those forces together and you have a very hardline government, the likes of which we haven't normally seen, because Netanyahu, right-wing as he is, has always preferred to not be, you know, the most left-wing or liberal person in his coalition. He used to prefer to bring in parties from the centre or the Labour Party, even in, in one of its iterations, and, and to sit somewhere in the middle. But we have another element here, which is the fact that Netanyahu is on trial on corruption charges mm. now. And as a result of that, he's he's both been clinging to power. He wants to fight the case from the prime minister's chair. And the centrist and left-wing parties have been refusing to sit in a coalition with a prime minister who's on trial. Yeah, so we're going to come back to Netanyahu, but I but I so admire the way you built this case for today from the ground up that I want to keep going with that, and then we'll come back to Netanyahu. So the mm-hmm. other group whose significance was interesting is the Mizrahim. And mm-hmm. describe for us who they are and the degree to which they now do or do not have power or influence and the potential for disruption? Because I don't think in the news that we see in the United States, they are generally referred to as a group. And I was shocked at the size of them mm-hmm. as a percent of the population today. So let's add in this tribe to the conversation. Absolutely. This is the let's unpack this one. So we spoke about the pre-state split and the undergrounds and the rivalries. 1948 comes along, the state of Israel is established, based mostly on the pioneering of European Jews, Jews who'd come from Eastern and Central Europe and were were really the, the founders of the modern Zionist state. In, in the pre-state years. Then we come to 48, and then pretty soon after that, the Arab regimes turn against their Jewish populations to a large extent because they are anti-Zionist and uh, are you know, championing the Palestinian refugee cause. And what you have is these very large Jewish communities that had existed for centuries, in in many cases, in the Arab world, in the Arab-speaking world, in North Africa, in Iraq, in Syria. And you see a huge, huge wave of immigration to Israel of these Arabic-speaking Jewish communities to the point where, you know, by sometime in in the mid-50s, half the Jews in the country are what we call the Mizrahim, the, the Eastern Jews or the Jews from the Arab or Muslim world. There's also Iran, Turkish Jews. And so that that proportion has kind of remained. I, I would say even today, about half of the Jewish majority within Israel are Mizrahim. And they came from very different backgrounds, clearly, than, than many of the European descended Jews. When they arrived, Arabic was not the flavor of the month around here. It was the language of the enemy. 
It was looked down upon people, you know, Arabic culture was not something that was valued in any way, quite the opposite. And Ben-Gurion also, in a way, used this huge wave of, of immigration, which was very welcome. Israel needed people, but it was poor. Israel was struggling to absorb all these people. And in many cases, they were kind of sent out without having much choice in the matter to what were, were kind of tent cities, Ma'barot, transit camps, often in very desolate parts of the country where Israel needed people. It needed to populate some of the, you know, sparsely populated territory and to secure the borders that way. So you ended up with Mizrahim in, let's put it bluntly, in many cases being dumped in these very remote parts of the country often without skills and without much prospect of, of much employment or, or progress. And these transit camps that were called Ma'barot, they grew into what were then called development towns, which were often quite miserable developments of housing projects and you know cheaper housing than in the central commercial parts of the country. But again, not giving people much prospect of, of a future in terms of, uh, you know, great education, employment, access to the centers of power. So the Mizrahim, I mean, I'm generalizing here. Of course, yeah, of there course. are many exceptions, but generally the Mizrahim were very resentful of the, the founding Ashkenazi, which is the European descended elite of the country. You know, to this day, even though we're now 75 years on, Many families are mixed. You know, obviously, many Mizrahi Jews have married Ashkenazi Jews, and there are, you know, third, fourth generations of totally mixed families. And the Mizrahi accent has has kind of faded. You can't really tell who's what anymore. And yet, that resentment has festered, and the Mizrahim have formed the base. You know, of of since the times of Menachem Begin in the nineteen seventies when you finally had what they called the the Ma'apach, the revolution where the Likud and the right wing took the reins of power after decades of, of Labour Party Ben-Gurionist rule here. And it rode in the Likud on a wave of, of resentment and, and voters from the Mizrahi population. You know, Menachem Begin was a master and manipulating that uh, sense of, of being an underdog here. Mm. Now, since 1977, the truth is the Likud, which, you know, claims to represent that population to a large degree and is popular among that population, has more or less been in power for most of the time. And yet there is still this feeling of being an underdog. Mm. And there are still gaps, partly because the development towns didn't always develop it's certainly not at the rate that the the commercial and cultural center of the country developed. You know, there is there are gaps. There are educational gaps. There are salary gaps. If you look at the percentage of Mizrahim who've served on the Supreme Court or in academia, there are still very serious abiding gaps. And so you have this kind of dichotomy where, on the one hand, you know, the, the leaders who have claimed to represent this population have basically been in power for most of the last few decades. And yet still this very unhealed and festering wound of, of feeling like, you know, of, of having been unwelcomed when they arrived, <laughs> not treated right. And, and many of the wrongs have not been corrected. And there's a kind of competition in a way of who built the country? So, yes, it's easy for the pioneers who came pre-state and set up kibbutzim and worked the land and fought in the 48 war to say, well, you know, most of the blood, sweat and tears was ours. You know, we did that. Mm. But the Mizrahi population came and populated these remote areas and suffered in ways of their own, and, and were very much a, a vital part of the building of the state. Um, and that is something that is 
beginning to be recognized now in, in more recent years. We have a very interesting, uh, you know, I spoke earlier about generational change. I mean, we have, uh, you know, second, third generation of, of Mizrahi families where the, the younger adults now are much more educated, much more assertive. You know, if their parents or grandparents were just using all their energy just to get through the month <laughs> and put food on the table, you now have a, a much more educated younger generation of activists who are going back through the archives, looking at those wrongs that were that, that were done to their parents and, and trying to begin to see them put right. This episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get on your way to being your best self. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash writebook. We are living in stressful times, and the hustle and bustle of the holidays can make it even more stressful. If you're considering starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be flexible and convenient. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with the best-for-you licensed therapist. Now is the time to give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WriteBook today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WriteBook. This is Roxanne Cody. Thanks for listening. And now back to Just the Right Book. So, Isabel, given that they represent over half the population, given that the conditions that led to their resentment have not been remedied by the Laikund, who's been in power for essentially 50 years with, you know, minor breaks in that, does that mean that that coalition's alignment with the Laikund is at all vulnerable to a leader in labor or more centrist for moving their alliance? Because that's a mighty big group that could change the political dynamics. Am I overstating that? You're not overstating the, the potential, but the reality is that there's a kind of loyalty. You know, it, it is almost a, a tribal loyalty to the Likud among the strongholds. Of, of course, there are Mizrahim who vote Labour. and we've Yeah, had, but I'm talking about them as a bloc. We've had Mizrahi leaders of the Labour Party. So we've kind of been there and done that. We had, uh, you know, Fuad Ben Eliezer. We've had uh, more recently Amir Peretz from the development town of Steyrot on the border of the Gaza Strip. We had Avi Gabay, even more recently, who grew up in a transit camp in Jerusalem and was a, a kind of wunderkind who got sent to a school for gifted children. And, you know, they, they've come in and taken over the leadership of the Labour Party with exactly what you mentioned in mind. Let's, let's mine the potential here. These voters who, you know, voted Likud again and again and again and, and still haven't realized their full potential in these towns, you know, let's get them to vote Labour, which you would think ought to represent the underdog, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, it um, seems... be a more social Democrat party, but it never worked. And Well, it, it, it seems oxymoronic that yeah. that's the case. But if you think about the United States, Trump and the right in the Republican Party has managed to appeal to a segment of the population that feels resentful and left out, even though that party historically hasn't done anything for that group and isn't now. But nonetheless, the loyalty is enormous. Right. And I think we can see parallels. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to look at. But, you know, we, what we're seeing is a kind of continual anti-establishment backlash. <laughs> That's yeah. been going on for yeah. decades, where you're fighting the old elites and the elites here 
the were always considered the Ashkenazi elites who are seen as, you know, having a grip over the Supreme Court, the mainstream media, uh, you name it. Right. Um, and also coming from uh, Arab-speaking countries, Arabic-speaking countries, in many cases, anything that smacked of socialism wasn't exactly uh, the cup of tea of, of many of the Mizrahim. And many of them, although they had previously lived fairly peacefully alongside their Muslim neighbors in the Arab countries and in the Muslim world, many of them once here took a much harder line Mm. politically and territorially against the Palestinian, on the Palestinian issue, for example. And that very much within the the fold of the Likud. So, Isabel, we've covered... A few of the major forces, the Ashkenazi, the Jews who came from Central and Eastern Europe, even before the Holocaust, who came in the 30s with either a desire for a Jewish homeland or because they saw the rising anti-Semitism. And then the other big immigrant group was the Mizrahim, as you mentioned. But the other big immigrant groups were the Russians, who, as the Soviet Union disintegrated and Jews were able to get visas out of Russia, there was even either a tacit or a wink and a nod agreement between Israel and the United States that Israel would get those immigrants that because they needed them. What role does that group and how significant are they in this political sort of rainbow that's been put together? Well, I would say in a nutshell that when they arrived on mass, we're talking about almost a million immigrants who came through the 1980s and you know early, very early 90s. They had a huge impact on Israel at the time, and are still having an impact today because the numbers. I mean, Israel today is you know nine point whatever ten million people, a fifth of whom are Palestinian Arab citizens of the state. So imagine, you know, back then a million people arriving through the 90s, it had a huge impact. Where we are today on the political map, the children of those immigrants are really voting all over the political map. They're not for the They most don't have part. a single ideological bent, seemingly. Luck, no. Now there are there, there's Avigdor Lieberman who has changed his uh, spots a few times of where he sits on the political spectrum. His party, Israel Beitenu, is largely a party of of, uh, Russian speakers, for Russian speakers. He himself immigrated from Moldova. And, you know, his main constituency are older Russian-speaking immigrants. But the younger people, the, the next generation that either came here as children or were born here, they're there all over the political map. Where they did have an impact in the 1990s is at various levels. First of all, it was an injection of secular Jews into Mm. Israel. So now we're seeing a shift, you know, where the religious populations are are growing exponentially, the ultra-Orthodox in particular, and are, are leveraging the coalition system here for really, you know, disproportionately large political power as well. But the numbers are are always growing. And so what you had in the 90s with the, was this huge injection of secular Jews. Now, when I say Jews, many of the immigrants from the former Soviet Union, they qualified, totally were eligible to come to Israel under the immigration law, the law of return, which applies to Jews, their spouses, their children, and their grandchildren. So even if you're married to a non-Jew, your spouse, non-Jewish spouse, your children, and even grandchildren are eligible to immigrate to Israel. But the non-Jewish parts of the family, while being Israeli, 
are not recognized by the Orthodox religious authorities here as full Jews. Mm. They're not Jewish enough by Jewish law. And therefore, because we have a monopoly here of religious authorities over marriage, for example, <laughs> you know, there are 400,000 Israelis here who cannot get married. Uh, yeah, I learned that, you know, I hadn't realized that in your book that there's no such, you know, I learned there's no such thing as a civil marriage. That's right. I don't there's mean no civilized point. marriage. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you're, if you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, the, the only official way to get married is it's Jew to uh, Jew. Is it, well, all Muslims can get married in the, through the Muslim courts, but it's it's through the religious authorities. There's no civil marriage here. Now that means you know there's no official single sex gay marriage. That means you know many of these Jews who came or descendants of Jews who came from the former Soviet Union or elsewhere have no way of officially getting married here. Now, what you can do is go abroad to Cyprus or somewhere and get married in a, you know, the municipality or the town hall or some registry office and come back with a certificate. And if you're legally married abroad, then that gets recognized here as a marriage. So that's one way of doing it. Um, But honestly, many people here are just opting out of the whole thing. It's chaos. Mm. Um, I, I think the last... 10 or 15 weddings that I've been to here in in recent years, not one has been an official wedding that would be recognized as a marriage by the state. So people are just having ceremonies and parties. They're getting their older brothers or friends to marry them, having lovely occasions and to mark the, the, you know, the marriage. And then are living as common law spouses and some make, you know, some legal arrangements. You can do a civil union agreement with a lawyer on property, etc. And and that's what's happening. People are just literally opting out of the system. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Isabel, I want to somewhat quickly cover two more topics, but I want to make sure we save at least 15 minutes to talk about the future today and the future, particularly judicial reform. So let's talk about the settlements, because you present a much more nuanced view of what in the U.S. press we think of as the settlements. So, The settlements are constantly in the news. They're the basis of much worldwide criticism, but they aren't just one dimension. So Mm -hmm. in kind of a nutshell, I know that's asking a lot when you hear the question, but you could do it, Isabel. (laughs) Walk us through how the 67 war technically redrew boundaries, how the Oslo agreements redefined what was and wasn't legal and how the political revolution of 1977 created yet another view of the settlements and who are the settlers today? Because as I learned in the book, they're not just the ultra-Orthodox. We've got millennials taking up huge spaces. So answer those questions Concisely. <laughs> okay, here goes. <laughs> this is a this is like a a test. <laughs> it, it's a trial by fire. Um, so, 1967 war, Israel conquers the West Bank from Jordan along with East Jerusalem, and conquers Gaza from the Egyptians. 
It's not clear that Israel really intended to, but by the end of the war, it had the West Bank. <laughs> and at first, the Labour government that was still in charge, uh, Labour governments, they allowed a, a little bit of settlement, of Jewish settlement in those areas. They allowed some descendants of Jews who had originally purchased land in the West Bank pre-state to go back. And then you had something called the Alon Plan, which was a kind of strategic vision where the Labour government said, okay, we need to, the Arab countries would not negotiate with Israel at the time. And holding on to the territory was certainly seen as a huge card for future negotiations. And the idea was to negotiate the future of those territories. And the Alon plan basically envisaged some Jewish settlement in areas that Israel intended to keep. But, you know, to stay away from the heavily Palestinian populated areas and not to get too entangled to the point where you wouldn't be able to create any future partition in any logical way. We then get to 1977, a decade later, when Menachem Begin and the Likud take power after all those decades of, of labor rule. And suddenly you see, you know, this is the maximalist side of the political map who were in favor of what they called then Greater Israel, which included the West Bank. The West Bank, of course, includes the heartland of, of biblical Israel. You know, you have the holy city of Hebron, you have the biblical Shechem, which is now Nablus. And these are very populous Palestinian cities, but very significant in to Jewish religious Jews. And then you suddenly saw this explosion of settlement activity from 1977 on, where there was a huge effort to incentivize Jews. Nobody forced Jews to move there, but to incentivize people to move to newly built settlements in the West Bank. Some of these settlements were built as kind of urban, almost commuter belt type suburbs, not far from the Israeli lines and, you know, commutable to Israeli cities. And others were more remote, smaller, much more ideological and usually more religious settlements settled by what we call now the national religious camp or the, the camp of religious Zionism. And they saw this as, you know, the, the 67 victory as a kind of almost messianic sign of redemption that, uh, and you they know, use Bible. language from the Bible that says you will be back in that land. Absolutely. It's all about the biblical promise. This is the promised birthright of the Jewish people. This is the cradle of, of the biblical Jewish land. And, you know, this, this is what we, we see as the driving force behind the more ideological settlement movement. Now, those representatives of that movement are now in government and have become increasingly powerful. But before jumping ahead to today, as you said, we then get to the mid-1990s and uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the labor leader, comes back into power and he wants to rearrange the priorities in the country. He wants uh, a peace process. He wants less money going to settlements and the West Bank and more money going, more of the budget going to education, health, um, for the benefit of, of all the Israelis. And Yitzhak Rabin is the leader who, on the Israeli side, together with uh, Yasser Arafat of the PLO, they, they forge, and, and of course, uh, the American administration as the brokers later on in the process, but they forge the Oslo Peace Accords. These are the first agreements between the Israelis and the Palestinian leadership ever. And <laughs> what happens is you have an interim agreement in the mid-90s, which established the Palestinian 
Authority, which is a, a kind of self-rule provisional Palestinian government that was given authority, you know, limited authority over the heavily populated parts of the West Bank. We're talking about 40% of the West Bank, the main Palestinian cities of the West Bank, and uh, in Gaza. And you had, you know, the, the authority living alongside the settlements, which are in the other 60% of the West Bank. And there were also settlements in, in Gaza. Now, the idea in the mid-90s was that this was all temporary and interim. And as the process, the peace process progresses, the idea was that by 1999, 2000, you would have a final agreement, which would involve some kind of Palestinian entity. Yitzhak Rabin didn't exactly favor or, or uh, state that it would actually be a sovereign Palestinian state. But the idea was that there would be some permanent, comprehensive peace agreement that would settle the status of the Palestinians in those territories and would involve clearly moving out uh, at large numbers of the settlers. We never got to that. There was no agreement. The second Palestinian intifada or uprising broke out in 2000. You had a very, very violent few years with suicide bombings in Israeli cities. And the Israeli peace camp ended up diminished. And we've never reached that final agreement. So what we have now, you know, nearly 30 years on, <laughs> is, is this uneasy situation in the West Bank where you still have this provisional Palestinian body, the Palestinian Authority, with very limited authorities in parts of the West Bank and the settlements which have continued to grow and grow and grow. And in Gaza, you had a unilateral withdrawal by Israel in 2005, where Israel left and took out the settlers and destroyed the settlements there. The Palestinian Authority took over, lost elections in Palestinian national elections in 2006 to Hamas, the Islamic militant group, who a year later in 2007 basically took over Gaza during factional fighting and chucked the Palestinian Authority out. So you now have a very split Palestinian polity, politically and geographically, where you have Hamas in charge in Gaza, the Palestinian Authority, which is very weak and divided among its, even within itself, in parts of the West Bank, and the Israeli settlements, which have just continued to grow and whose representatives are, as I say, now in a very powerful position in the Israeli government. But as you mentioned, not all the settlers are homogenous. They're not all ideological. You have a lot of Israelis who moved out there for, quote, unquote, quality of life reasons. You know, you could get a, a house with a garden for the same price as a tiny apartment in Tel Aviv and being commutable distance. And, and so you have a, a mix of population out there. So, Isabel, th thank you for that explanation, because I think, you know, one of the things I realized as a Jew, I pay attention to a lot of the news about Israel. I, like American, many American Jews, become alarmed at the slide or the risk of slide away from democracy. But in reading your book, I also realized how much I didn't know, how much I didn't understand. And the way you layer it up gave me as a reader a much more nuanced understanding. So when we come to today, and I want to uh, break this down a little bit, we come to today where as you lay out and in, in both this conversation and even more so in the book, it has been difficult to put a, together a coalition in Israel because we've got all these various uh, constituencies. Their needs have morphed into different needs. And because the ultra-Orthodox Jews 
are having seven, eight, nine children compared to a substantially lower rate of children in the rest of the population, someone like Netanyahu, who maybe at one point might have been considered center-right, has now needed, particularly in this last coalition, to sweep in the ultra-Orthodox because his major goal is to stay in power. And that brings us to this, what's in the news now, namely the judicial reform. So the judicial reform was introduced earlier this year, generated some of the largest, most vociferous protests in the history of Israel. And it was paused earlier this year as a result of these protests, but now appears to be raising its head again. And so in trying to understand this reform, as you lay out, as you've laid out in some of your articles for the New York Times, A, we need to understand the current government. The parliament does not have two parties. It's a single party. So there isn't a party check. It is the parliamentary system. You need 61 seats in order to have formed a government. It does not have a constitution. The country does not have a constitution. It does have a declaration of independence, but it really doesn't, as I understand it, have teeth. So... What I'd like to have you help us understand is what is being proposed as the reform, but underneath it, it seems as if there's need for some reform or the need for a constitution in order to have a bedrock for the country to move forward. So again, I'm going to ask you, (laughs) (laughs) to take a big, very complicated conversation and share it with us in short sentences. Easy peasy. (laughs) So the judicial overhaul, as as it's being largely referred to, it's actually the child of, of several different parents because the different groups who support it and who have pushed for it do so for different reasons of their own. So if we just start by saying, I mean, Netanyahu, in all his years until recently, until he was basically being charged on corruption charges, uh, was always very protective of the Supreme Court. And for the reasons you have laid out, Israel, you know, it doesn't have a federal system. It has one house of parliament. It has no formal constitution. The Supreme Court is the last bastion of protecting minority rights in the country. And it was untouchable as far as Netanyahu was concerned until quite recently. Now he's in bed with these uh, bedfellows who each for their own reasons have wanted to essentially weaken the court. Now what they will say is it's necessary to redress the balance between the different branches of government because the unelected elitist judges have given themselves too much authority over the years and they need to be reined in and the elected representatives should have the the final word. Now, what you're looking at in a system like Israel's, which is a very vibrant, but also a rather vulnerable and fragile democracy for all those reasons you laid out, you know, you're looking at a potential tyranny of the majority, you know, anything that 61 legislators out of the 120 want to do, they'll be able to do. If you cut down the options for judicial review and judicial oversight, which is what many of these reforms aim to do, and to cut down the authorities of the gatekeepers, like the attorney general and the legal advisors to the government, which is another slice of this legislative uh, proposal, or you severely restrict the reasonability, the grounds of reasonability that the Supreme Court uh, uses in cases where 
the conflict of interest or other grounds don't quite cover it. All these things are basically aimed at curbing the authorities of the judges and even politicizing the way judges are selected so that the government, I mean, the original proposal, which definitely had, you know, had sparked these huge protests, you had the original proposal of the justice minister to give the government representatives an automatic majority on the committee that selects judges, which would be essentially politicizing the court. So this, you know, if we look at the different groups supporting this proposed reform, you have the, let's call it the Likud base, many of whom are the resentful Mizrahim who see the Supreme Court as, as the bastion of the old elites. And indeed, there haven't been enough diverse judges sitting on that the, the panel. Um, there haven't been enough Mizrahi judges over the years. You have the secular leadership, the ultranationalist religious Zionists who also want to weaken the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has restricted, in some cases, settlement construction where, you know, they haven't said it's illegal, uh, although most countries of the world do consider Israeli Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank to be a violation of international law. The Israeli Supreme Court hasn't gone there, but it has said privately owned Palestinian land is sacrosanct. Settlers may not construct uh, homes on privately owned Palestinian land, for example. So you have the religious Zionist leadership against the court. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox parties. Now, just to give the listeners a little sense of proportion of what we're talking about, you noted that the ultra-Orthodox tend to have large families. One in four children born in Israel today are born into ultra-Orthodox families. If current trends continue, that statistic is expected to double by 2050. Now, these children are going into an autonomous, ultra-Orthodox education system here where they are hardly learning, if at all, secular subjects. They're not the boys in particular. They're not learning math. They're not learning science. They're not learning English. They're coming out unequipped for a modern workforce. And this is a country which doesn't have oil and riches. It's a, it's a country that it's survives brave. on its brain power. <laughs> yes. So you have the high-tech industry, which is the driver of the Israeli economy, which is already short of engineers. You know, we had a good boost in the 90s with the uh, Russian-speaking immigration, but they're, they're short of engineers and they're having to outsource. And, and we're now bringing up you know, a a huge generation of ultra-Orthodox children unequipped for this workforce. Now, they also, the ultra-Orthodox generally here, do not serve in the army. In the military, yeah. Universal conscription in theory, all 18-year-olds or Jewish 18-year-olds, the Palestinian Arab citizens are exempt because it wouldn't work for either side, really to be serving in the Israeli army. But the ultra-Orthodox also have uh, enjoyed mass exemptions, wholesale exemptions from military service. And this is something that, you know, they want to legislate. They want to anchor in law. Now they want a law that says that full-time Torah study in a yeshiva, in a religious seminary, is equal to army service. Now in the past, when... Israel has tried to legislate this mass exemption for the ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students. It has been struck down by the Supreme Court on grounds that it does not comport with the basic principle of equality. And that is why the ultra-Orthodox have a great interest in this judicial reform to create a situation where the Supreme Court can't strike down laws like that. So each of these groups, for their own reasons, want to see a much weaker Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is 
the, the last and only bastion here for protecting minority rights in the absence of a constitution or a bill of rights. And as you said, yes, I mean, obviously Israel should have a constitution, but it's never been able to agree on one. The principle of equality, you might be surprised to hear, does not exist in any written Israeli law. It does in the Declaration of Independence, right? Which, which is not legally binding. Right. <laughs> yes. And now the, the Declaration of Independence is very clear that Israel should be a liberal state with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of gender, creed, religion, etc. And, and it's become a symbol of the protest movement against yeah. the Judaism reform for that reason. But no government, no, no, no parliament has been able to actually pass a law with the word equality in it so far, because there are groups here who do not want equality. So, Isabel, we only have a few minutes left, and you and I could continue this conversation for a very long time. And people will just have to read the book, and then you and I will just yeah. have to talk again. <laughs> What I'd like to try and envelop in the final few minutes is, one, where you think this judicial reform will go. You know, we have Herzog, President Herzog, which is kind of a powerless position in Israel, speaking before Congress this week. We have some progressives who are boycotting his speech. Biden is now finally issued an invitation to Netanyahu before the end of 2023. <laughs> so the title of your book is Hope and Fear. Mm -hmm. I think we don't have to talk anymore about the reason for fear. Uh, <laughs> I think there's uh, uh, unfortunately a clear understanding of that. And in the state of Israel, we have a country that in 75 years has created an economy, a democracy, an extraordinarily vibrant country in every way. And as we said at the outset, it's now at a pivot point. So right. what I'd like you to wrap up for us, if you could, we have about four minutes what do you see as a path to preserving democracy yet remaining a Jewish state? Is there a path? And what role will this judicial form, a reform, have in making that possible or impossible? Well, let's start with the judicial reform, because what we're seeing this week is one slice of it being put forward by early next week before the summer recess of parliament for a final vote. And that is the restriction of the grounds of reasonability that the court has relied on over the years to strike down rotten appointments or decisions by the government. That will no longer be possible if this goes through next week as it is expected to. But that is just one slice. Now, the big question is what happens with the rest of it? The government and the parliament go into a long summer recess until after the high holidays in the fall. And it's very unclear at this point where it is going. If, if you ask me, I don't think Netanyahu himself knows at this stage. Will it be possible to stop here and calm everything down? and hope the rest of it goes away? Is it going to be possible to reach agreements under the auspices of, of President Herzog and reconvene talks between the opposition and the government to reach a consensus? That's one possibility as well. Netanyahu himself has been very ambiguous about where it will go from here. Obviously, his coalition partners are insisting that we see more in the fall. But what we do see, and here comes the hope, <laughs> we see a tremendous backlash. Not just, you know, when you say 200,000 protesters are out in the street, that sounds very impressive in a country the size of Israel, which is, you know, 10 million people, geographically the size of New Jersey. But these people who are 
protesting are from the key sectors of Israeli society. We're talking about the high-tech leaders and workers. We're talking about the reservists from the officer and commander corps of the most elite units in the Israeli army. You know, we're talking about the medical professionals who've been coming out en masse. And now we're talking about the union, the, you know, the main union, Histedrut, which has also made it clear that uh, when things go too far, they will call a general strike. And so we're talking about such key sectors of Israeli society who are pushing back and defending Israel's future as a liberal democracy that, you know, none of this is going to pass easily or peacefully or quietly. I think, you know, we, we've never seen a movement like this before. It's, it's mm. vibrant, dynamic, it's, it's tremendous. And I think a lot of people are, are, are feeling inspired and hopeful as a result of that. And, you know, Roxanne, I, I saw an interview once with an Israeli artist and sculptor called uh, Yigal Tamarkin, the late Yigal Tamarkin. He was a rather brilliant but cantankerous man. And he was asked on TV, if you could change one thing about Israel, what would it be? And he said, the people. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I have to say that after working on this book, The Land of Hope and Fear, which is really a journey through Israeli society and going into every nook and cranny of the population, I couldn't disagree with him more. The people here are engaged, they're passionate, they're totally, they care. There is no apathy here. And I think that is a huge asset for any country. And whether, you know, everyone agrees or not, and clearly they do not, I think what this country does have going for it is, is that passion and that drive. Mm. And obviously, looking ahead on the face of it, it looks kind of doomed, but, you know, demographically, et cetera. But, but I feel that we are at an inflection point that could actually lead to some kind of fundamental course correction, which is so needed here. Yeah. Well, Isabel, I, you know, I am wired optimistic. So <laughs> I appreciate that you put hope in the title and have more than a flimsy reason to believe in in hope. I want to uh, thank you for taking the time. I want to really encourage our listeners to pick up the book, The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul, because I think you present such an even-handed view, and I think you support your closing contention. Namely, this book is about the people that built Israel and are currently compose the population of Israel, and they do present the the possibility of a pivot to end up with a democracy and continue to be a vibrant member of the Middle East. So we've been talking with Isabel Kirshner, the author of The Land of Hope and Fear, Israel's Battle for Its Inner Soul. And I want to close with your words because you have this in the epilogue of your book, and, I, and I'm condensing two paragraphs, but you close with this. But still there is the hope built on the unlikely birth of the state of Israel with all its imperfections and its proven knack for improvisation, innovation, resilience, and survival. They bear the fruits of those who came before them and for the generations to come adapting, enduring, still ripening in the sun. So Isabel Kirshner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. And let's hope your hopes become the reality. Thank you. And thank you for this great conversation, Roxanne. And yes, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be well, thank Isabel. You. Thank you so much. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. 
JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.